This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, the great James Bennett, and, in conjunction with the UN General Assembly, which met in New York this week, a woman I've known for 20 years, Ambassador Capricia Marshall, the U.S. Chief of Protocol, and an icon for advanced people of both parties. If there was a Hall of Fame of advanced people, I'd make Jim King, the great Kennedy advanced man, Mike Deaver, Ronald Reagan's deputy chief of staff, and Capricia Marshall, the youngest ever White House social secretary in the modern era, its first inductees. We'll get to Capricia in a moment, but first, some context on where we are right now. We're only days away from the first presidential debate, Wednesday, October 3rd, at the University of Denver. Scraping away for a populous town in a battleground state, Virginia, Ohio, Florida, Colorado, he hasn't yet visited, the odds seem to be building now against Governor Mitt Romney. You balance the need to hit these towns against, and this isn't mentioned much, real event fatigue among an electorate that says, enough already. How many times can you ask a voter to stand on a drizzly tarmac to provide the human foreground and backdrop that screams momentum before these crowds dwindle and the opposite occurs? The last events of Bob Dole in 1996 and John McCain in 2008 felt like that, and they weren't pretty. So, a historical analogy. The debate in Denver could be Waterloo, the Alamo, or the Little Bighorn, but the outcome needs to be reversed for Governor Romney. Can overwhelming firepower be thwarted? Like the Mongols under Genghis Khan, the Romans after the sack of Brennus? But how about Winston Churchill after the Blitz, or George Washington rallying the Continental Army? Long odds to be sure, but it could happen. And yet, time is running short. We'll see what happens in Denver next week, but here's another great American political debate that's been going on for years, with the outcome decided not at the ballot box, but in the courtroom. Jim Bop Jr. versus Trevor Potter. Two names you may have never heard of, but the outcome may be the fate of money in politics. In this month's cover story in The Atlantic, Editor-in-Chief James Bennett returns with a major byline, The New Price of Politics, and he joins us from Atlantic's office in Washington. James, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. So can you frame this debate for us for those who haven't read the article yet and will post it at polyoptics.com, the forces of Bop World versus the legions of Potterville? Yeah, it's this hugely constant, hugely consequential fight that's been going on for a long time that really is about the foundations of American democracy. But it takes place at a technical level, a level of abstraction that fails to engage most voters. It's a debate about campaign finance reform, fundamentally about how we pay for politics. Jim Bopp and Trevor Potter are both Republican lawyers. They both got their start, really, as volunteers for Barry Goldwater. But their experience of politics and the way they approach these issues have t- sent them off in diametrically opposed uh, directions. Trevor Potter is the lawyer behind this most important piece of campaign finance reform, really in the post-Watergate era, which is the McCain-Feingold legislation. Jim Bopp is a lawyer who's been battering down 
all sorts of campaign finance restrictions for more than 20 years now. Everybody thought he was nuts when he first started, but he's basically eviscerated McCain-Feingold and is in many ways the guy who led to the creation of super PACs and the kind of Wild West campaign finance environment that Barack Obama and Mitt Romney are competing in this cycle. So before we get to the substance of the article, it does strike me when... uh, as a subscriber of your magazine and other great magazines like The New Yorker, the editor-in-chief goes to the trouble of, of doing, I don't know, what was your piece, 10,000 words? Yeah. Uh, Too long, and put, no doubt, and, Josh. And putting together <laughs> that length of an article. When do you decide that it's time for you to uh, put away for a moment the red pen and pick up the reporter's notebook and the pencil and, and actually be a, a, a working journalist again, like like Remnick did a few weeks ago, and, and like we hear from you guys once in a blue moon, but why the, why this issue and why now? Well, I, I, the truth is I wish I was doing more of it because I think getting out there and reporting, having contact with reality, again, is good for any editor, and um, it, 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 it's, it's tremendously energizing. This particular subject um, engaged me just because I do think it's so important and it hasn't been getting the attention that I think it deserves. Um, and maybe I couldn't get any of our other writers to write about it. Because uh, <laughs> really, I mean, who wants to write about campaign finance reform? Again, you know, Goldberg uh, has Springsteen to write about, for goodness sake. Right. Yeah, he got to do Springsteen and I, I got to do uh, campaign finance. To me, this is classic Atlantic terrain because the ideas that are at work here are so important and the consequences for the country are really so great. Oh, absolutely. And as we'll get to in a moment, it's not necessarily unfunny, too. And I want to be clear about that. As you note, uh, James Bennett, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, in 2010, the first year of super PACs, there were 84 groups that spent collectively $65 million. And as of August 23rd, probably when the magazine went to press, there were 797 super PACs that have spent $349 million dollars. And yet, as I'm watching the latest feeds on the campaign trail, I wonder how much super PACs themselves are affecting the presidential race or not. Uh, do, you, do, do you have a sense of what these 749 organizations are having an impact between Romney and Obama? I think there's no question some of these super PACs are just separating rich people from their money and making political operatives very rich. This is always a story in politics, um, and a lot of this money is being spent badly. But I think there's no question it's having a huge impact on the campaign. Um, uh, NBC did a very interesting study recently that found that two-thirds of all the advertisements so far that have supported Um, Mitt Romney have been paid for by outside groups, not by his campaign. And one of the simple tangible effects, measurable effects in the campaign is that both candidates are spending so much time raising money. This is the first time this has happened in the post-Watergate era because they both left the public finance system. One of the reasons they're doing that is to make themselves competitive in this environment when so much money is rushing in. So it's had a profound consequence simply on the conduct of this campaign. Hard to tell yet if it's going to have an impact on the outcome or not. What the political experts have been saying all along is that this money is likely to have more of an effect further down the ballot, less on the presidential race where there's a ton of information from all sorts of sources uh, reaching voters, more in Senate races and House races where a million dollars, five million dollars could be decisive. 
Well, that's absolutely right. I think we had uh, former Maine Governor Angus King now running for the U.S. Senate uh, on the show a couple weeks ago, and basically he's raising money because he doesn't have much of a, an actual human opponent, but he does have super PACs that might want to affect the outcome of the race. So he's traveling all over, the, uh, at least to New York and Washington, to raise money from afar just to be in a, a strong defensive position for an attack he thinks may or, or may not come. Well, and that's the thing, Josh, is that in this environment no candidate can feel like they have ever raised enough money because who knows and we already had the spectacle before this cycle began of legislators who really have to spend a lot of their time on the phone calling big donors trying to raise money for their campaigns and we're really only at the beginning of this you know i mean there this is the first presidential cycle with super PACs we've seen this explosion in fundraising by the time this happens next time around they're going to be that much more sophisticated and there's going to be that much more money unless somehow we get on top of this well i want to pay a visit to both bop world and potterville and and begin with jim bop and you begin your piece uh, and, you know, I've, I've read your stuff for so long, so I'm trying to figure out sort of if, where you're going to go with it. But you, but you begin with a fulsome exposition of what drives the work of Jim Bob. In your piece, you say you listen to him for a change instead of react to the way most polls think people think about campaign finance reform. So I want to hear before we get to talking about Jim a little bit more, a little bit of, of his view of the world in his own words. Citizens United is simply the latest round of the age-old struggle between the citizens and government. People want to participate in the government, and they certainly want to be able to criticize them when it's warranted. The government, particularly incumbent politicians, want to use government to silence them. Now, when we had the divine right of kings, uh, if you criticized the government, you were tortured, imprisoned, murdered, and then condemned to hell. Uh, when we separated church and state, you were just tortured, imprisoned, and murdered. James Bennett, tell me what you found when you went to Terry Hutt, Indiana, to talk to Jim Bob. I found that he's a tremendously persuasive advocate for his point of view, Josh. And the fact is, if you listen to him carefully, he has a very powerful case to make. That's what makes this so complex and interesting. When you talk about how we pay for politics, fundamental American values are legitimately in conflict here. On the one side, you have... First Amendment rights, free speech rights, which Jim Bopp believes is the paramount virtue to be defended here, and that any restriction on money in politics is ultimately a restriction, of, a restriction on for the First Amendment. That's the fight he's been waging in the courts and winning on now for several years. On the other hand, the Trevor Potter view is that that's all true, but in reality, the way politics is practiced, unlimited amounts of money of undermines the the founding principle of this country, which is that each citizen's vote should count equally and is wind, winds up being inevitably corrupting to the system. But Jim Bob's view, it's not a, it's not a cynical view at all. His belief is that the, that if, if, for example, the very term outside groups that reformers use, others of us journalists tend to use when talking about politics, gives the game away. His argument is there should be no such thing as an outside group in American politics. Everybody is supposed to be participating in a democracy. And what his argument is that what these campaign finance restrictions have done is raise the hurdle, protect incumbents, make it harder for other people to get into the process because you've got to hire an accountant, you've got to hire a lawyer, you've got to worry about all the rules, rather than just plunging in and participating in the wild, open, rollicking debate of ideas that's supposed to fuel our republic. 
as you were allowing yourself this uh, this privilege of of getting out there and actually reporting the story and going to a place like Terre Haute, did you, from your usual perch in Washington, did you did you sort of and you you put a lot of color uh, into the piece about about his law office and what it's like there. But does, is this a reflection of some of the sentiment from the middle of the nation? I well, it's one point of view from the middle of the nation. I wouldn't say that Jim Bob speaks for the for the great American middle, but there's no question that he has an outsider's perspective on Washington, and in many ways, a, a healthy skepticism of of the government. Um, he's always been outside. He came at this issue from the right to life movement, right not to life from movement, any right. form. Uh, yeah, not from any formal political campaign, and he kind of backed into it because. They were uh, distributing voter guides that were meant to inform people on on politicians' positions on um, abortion and obviously advocate for particular candidates who were uh, uh, anti-abortion. And the FEC acted against him, and he was so offended by this notion that the government would prevent them from participating that that's where he really got his start in the in the early 1980s. And he's not. You know, he, he comes through Washington. He's argued before the Supreme Court several times. But he I mean, his record def- in front of the court yeah. is amazing. Yeah, it's quite a good record. Um, and he brought the Citizens United case, although he was not the guy who argued it in the end. He was right. replaced as counsel in that case. But it was it was his argument that carried the day. He also, by the way, s- supplied the legal ra- rationale by which uh, Bush v. Gore was decided. Um, it, this guy, this guy has had a remarkably profound impact on our on our politics. I think it's it's not widely appreciated how much this one lawyer with this street corner practice in Terre Haute has influenced the way we um, govern ourselves. Certainly, the most influential figure to come out of Terre Haute since Larry Bird, number thirty three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. I think. So <laughs> I promised in our interview that campaign finance reform was not going to be unfunny. And I want to move over to, uh, to Potterville and hear a clip of Trevor Potter with, uh, with one of his key clients. We took a careful look at the law and realized that you do not have to file anything with the IRS until after the election. So when I formed my 501c4, Colbert Super PAC SHH, right. we didn't tell the IRS That's right. that we were in existence or what we'd be doing with the money? That's right, we're waiting until after the election to tell them that. (laughs) Until after it doesn't matter anymore. Right. (laughs) And everything's cool as long as we don't tell them. Right, as long as they're not watching tonight, for instance. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about counselor and client in that exchange. This is one of the segments that uh, Trevor Potter has been doing with Stephen Colbert, as Stephen Colbert has set up and run his own super PAC um, over the course of the last more than a year now. And I think has done a really brilliant job um, to explain these issues, make them clear, and kind of show, take us through the looking glass to show this kind of weird upside down world of campaign finance where there are all these tight rules and regulations that fundamentally don't mean anything. I mean, up is kind of down often and and he's done a wonderful job the way he does of using satire um, to just show how ridiculous this has become. I mean, this is a world in which, you know, super PACs are not supposed to coordinate the term is the term of art is coordinate with the campaign, 
And but but the watchdogs that are supposed to monitor this, the FEC, have become so toothless that Carl Rove, for example, who runs one of the largest super PACs, filed a report a request with the FEC saying, well. Um, I want to make sure that this won't qualify as coordinated. I want to film ads with congressional candidates. They will approve the script. They will speak the script. They will, they will appear in the ads. But I want to make sure you guys don't consider this to be coordination. Um, and, and to be fair, on the other side, James Bennett, I mean, Bill Burton ha- would have no idea about what the Obama campaign really wants out of Priorities USA. Oh, sure. It? Sure. I mean, he's just a former aide of the president. I mean, there are these fictions that are maintained that somehow there isn't coordination here, and on both sides there's clearly a high degree of it. And what what Colbert has done in that instance and many others is just show how the the fundamental absurdity of of this system. He's cut some brilliant ads himself, by the way. Right, and and so to the extent that any of us give a hoot about campaign finance reform and the emergence of super PACs and 501c4s this cycle, it's largely uh, thanks to Stephen Colbert. So this must have uh, intrigued you. How did, was this, did this come from the creative side, the, the, the Colbert staff and Stephen, or did it come from Trevor, I need a great outlet for this weirdly weird story? It came from Colbert. And uh, Trevor Potter will say it took him a while to get the joke. He didn't really understand how it was supposed to work. <laughs> and he, if you watch these segments, which you can on their site, I'll put um, some you, on. Can see, you can see him warming to the to the shtick as time goes on. Although he always plays the the Trevor Potter, the the Washington lawyer in his suit with his pocket square um, and his uh, briefcase. And his briefcase. Um, so he always happens to have exactly the form that's needed in his briefcase. Uh, as tr- as Colbert begins with a plain old pack, turns it into a super pack, and and begins evading other loopholes. I don't think you quote Colbert or his staff at all in the piece, but did you get their input to the story and and what they were really trying to do? I actually de- didn't. I mean, he's he's gotten so much acclaim. He's won a Peabody Award at this point for the for the. Um, the work that he's done, I feel like it spoke for itself, right. and um, uh, I did. I was. I spent more time with Trevor Potter and and um, and Jim Bob to understand the ideas that they're grappling with. You know, this the work that uh, Jim Bob has done, as you said, uh, eviscerating McCain-Feingold. Um, you know, so many of us know the story of John McCain uh, and his his father, his military service, his uh, his captured by the Vietnamese, uh, his rise in politics, and also his ensnarement in the Keating Five, and then the passion with which he he began uh, campaign finance reform working with Russ Feingold after that. Did you touch base with Senator McCain or Russ Feingold about their feelings about seeing their work taken apart piece by piece? You know, one of the disappointments to me in reporting this piece, Josh, is that uh, Senator McCain didn't respond to requests to talk about this. And he has actually gone to ground a little bit in this campaign cycle on the subject of campaign finance reform. It's a, it's kind of a uh, strange situation. You know, there's a long history of obviously Republican efforts to restrict money in politics. In fact, it was Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, back in 1907 who first pushed Congress to ban corporate contributions. And just in the last cycle, it was the Republican standard bearer, John McCain, who was the leading advocate of campaign finance reform. 
But now the Republicans are the huge beneficiaries of all this money washing into the system. And um, you can see that they're kind of all falling into line on not messing with, uh, not seeking to reimpose any kind of controls. It may be that after this cycle's over, John McCain will reemerge, but he, he has not been um, a, a loud voice on the subject. I love the way in your piece, James Bennett, you weave history into it. How was, um, how was President James Garfield's legacy affected by the way campaigns used to be run? You know, I find this fascinating, Josh, I, 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 and I, I hope your listeners will, because this is the long history of how we pay for politics is so interesting. It, the founders were very worried about corruption of money, but it wasn't really a big issue for many decades because most of the early candidates were wealthy individuals who've paid for their own campaigns and it didn't cost a lot of money to run. But by the middle of the 19th century, it started to become pretty expensive and there was this emerging class of professional politicians. The population was getting bigger, governments were getting bigger, and these professional campaigns needed to be, needed to, candidates needed to finance themselves somehow. And what they wound up doing was effectively selling offices to people who would give them money for their campaigns. And um, nobody, there was, there, were, there was some public outcry about this because it didn't exactly produce a high standard of government uh, servant, but nothing was done about it until James Garfield was shot dead <laughs> by <laughs> a disappointed office seeker that he denied a position to, and that resulted in um, the 1883 Pendleton, Pendleton Act. Act. Which, yeah, which created the civil service, um, barred civil servants from participating directly in campaigns. But inadvertently, which is also part of the history of campaign finance reform, it led to the unintended consequence of causing these politicians to look around and say, okay, well now, how are we going to pay for our campaigns? Answer, we're going to raise money from these giant corporations emerging in the Gilded Age, the kind of booming concerns of the Industrial Revolution. So it became steel companies um, uh, and the big banks, oil, um, uh, and other other big corporations began paying for um, campaigns. And this then led to a series of scandals at the end of the century. Before I let you go, James, and get your final views on where campaign finance is going, uh, your piece takes an odd turn around three-quarters of the way through in which you discuss how the rules around campaign finance are also a family matter for the Bennetts. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, this is part of, Josh, why I, 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 uh, I got interested in this subject. I, um, my my, my uh, big brother is a, a senator from Colorado, as I've disclosed to the re- our readers in the past. And Michael Bennett, the junior Michael senator. Michael Bennett, the junior senator. And he stood for election in the last midterms, had a very tough campaign, first campaign of his life, actually. And he was the top target, really, in the country of this kind of new spending. And I was out there with him. I took a leave and went out there for the last few weeks of the campaign and had this just unusual, I guess, experience of sitting there with him on his couch late at night watching the news and seeing advertisement after advertisement from group after group I'd never heard of before attacking him. And and then also watching ads by other groups he and I hadn't heard of before attacking his opponent. And and then attacking other uh, congressmen, house races, everything. The airways were just full of these really nasty advertisements. And it, I, I'll say it just seemed crazy to me. It just seemed like not a way 
unfortunately not the hopeful part of Jim Bob's vision, which is this wonderful contest of ideas, and instead much more of a way just to turn people off completely to politics, to any candidate, to the idea of government, and just wanting to make it all go away, which unfortunately is what the polling suggests the reaction has been to the, to the campaign this time around. I mean, I, I remember uh, all of Michael's fundraising emails. I've certainly paid a lot of attention <laughs> to uh, yeah. to uh, President Obama's "Give me three dollars, give me five dollars" yeah. fundraising emails. They're incessant. They yep. they do cast a pall over him, even though I, you know, it is to your point about they yep. don't know how much they'll need, so they keep raising and raising and raising. President Obama uh, fires up Air Force One. Governor Romney travels all over the country to to do these fundraisers. It gets Governor Romney into the pickle that he got in with a forty seven percent. Uh, comment from this video that's shot sort of surreptitiously and the surreptitiousness of the video and the crowd makes it look worse probably than yep. than, than his fundamental message. And so uh, as I let you go, James, um, where does this go in 2014, 2016? I, I think at the pace we're on, unfortunately, Josh, I mean, and you know how this works. It, it, right now, all this money in politics is both an effect and a cause of kind of how broken the system is. Because there are things that could be done, you know, right now that would affect it. Congress could pass this piece of legislation called the Disclose Act that would, would at least force the contributors to any kind of political advertising to identify themselves. Right now we don't know where a lot of this money is coming from. The Federal Election Commission could act. The IRS also, we haven't really talked about this, but could crack down on some of the non-disclosing groups. What the reformers say is, this is cyclical. What always happens is there's some huge scandal, and that engages the public, and that brings attention to the issue, and that finally forces the policymakers to act. I, I don't know. I mean, just because that's happened before doesn't mean it necessarily needs to happen again. But I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm hopeful that it won't take a big scandal, that, that um, that the politicians themselves may pull back from this, and uh, and that voters that there'll be some pressure from the from the public for a more rational system than the one we all have to live with now. Nobody made an affirmative decision to do this to create this system. It's not even the one that Jim Bopp would like to see. So it's simply a function of nobody um, stepping up. And, and nobody really having the guts to take some action. And my hope is maybe we'll see that. Well, James Bennett, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, his massive article in the current issue, The New Price of American Politics. It's a fascinating read. Let's not let so much time pass again, James, before we see your byline in the magazine. Thanks a lot, Josh. That's really kind of you. Welcome to our microphones, the American woman who has the duty and honor to be the first to shake hands with visiting heads of state and government and royalty when they come to our shores, Ambassador Capricia Marshall, United States Chief of Protocol. Welcome, Capricia. Well, hello. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. King. Uh, we go back a long way. We do, we do. I remember particularly a... Um, you are so resplendent in your beautiful yellow outfit this week in New York, but I remember uh, you coming off a bus in a, in a muddy decrepit rodeo arena in Ocala, Florida, 
following the First Lady of Arkansas. So who is that beautiful woman? Aren't you so kind? Well, well, you know, that was many years ago, but many fond memories ago as well. And whether it's with boot on the on the heels or uh, Louboutins on the feet, <laughs> it's the same Capricia. <laughs> exactly. So uh, thanks for coming up. Thanks for tying up our traffic all week here in New York. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> uh, beyond what we're going to be talking about and, and the American Chef Corps and the Partnership for Diplomacy. Uh, let's let's focus first on this role uh, of the the protocol office of the U.S. State Department at the United Nations General Assembly this week. What's gone on? What's your staff been up to? Well, uh, we love this time of the year. It is our annual trek to New York. Um, our entire office, almost from uh, Washington D.C. Uh, moves to uh, the Waldorf Astoria, in which we camp out and set up uh, a protocol office so that we can serve the president and the secretary of state while they engage with the world. Um, there are so many events day to day that take place from multilaterals to bilaterals to hosting receptions, small dinners, large dinners, you name it. We are doing it and we are doing it back to back every day, starting at the beginning of this week, all throughout the weekend and into the early part of next wow. week. Uh, yes, but it's a joy. It's exciting. It's fascinating. Uh, the world circumstances, of course, affect everything that we do moment to moment. Uh, and I just I can't say enough about how wonderful this position is and how incredibly privileged I feel uh, to be sitting uh, in this post. At the Waldorf, are you uh, are you is there a master control room? Are you looking mm -hmm. up at screens or charts where you've deployed your team? I wish we were that high tech, but we do have computers. Yes, and uh, but we do have a master room. It's uh, on the twenty fourth floor. It has been for many many years, um, and uh, we have a ceremonials office. We have a visits office. We're engaging not only with uh, those leaders, those heads of delegation, uh, prime ministers, presidents, royalty that the president and the secretary are engaging with. But in addition to that, we assist foreign ministers uh, from other delegations to actually have access and to get to their meetings within the Waldorf and around uh, around the city. We also assist um, uh, Secretary um, Ambassador Rice, excuse me. We also assist uh, deputy secretaries at the State Department and other senior officials within our government. So we have a lot going on. Can you make this whole week work with just your, your team in the protocol office, or do you bring in additional assets and resources from the state State Department or other departments? Well, we have a great core team. I mean, really trained individuals that are trained incredibly well uh, within the Office of Protocol. So they're the core of the team. But yes, we reach out to people at the State Department that work in the various bureaus, desk officers. In addition to that, we work in coordination with, hand-in-hand -hand with the White House team, the advanced teams there, other core individuals that work at the White House. And then, of course, our great partners in all of this is the UN uh, staff. They are fantastic. And uh, we work hand-in-hand -hand with them because most of what we do will either occur at various locations around New York City or at the UN. The primary functions, of course, are occurring at the UN. Going back a ways, Capricia, you grew up in a home with a uh, Mexican mother and a Croatian father. Yes. And how did that set the stage for a career in diplomacy? 
I have to say, rather well. Uh, growing up in a, in a household, I'm first-generation American. Uh, my mother came from Mexico, as you said, and my father from, from Croatia. And uh, there were many languages spoke in our house. Uh, we also had many friends that would come over, other uh, ethnic groups that would come over to the house. We, Our neighbors were Lebanese. Uh, best friends were Russians. My grandmother adopted two Italian children. So the, it was a mini UN, literally, within our house for every holiday. And I so enjoyed that because it was about engaging and learning a new cultures, uh, new foods, interesting ways in which you know all of the various types of uh, people from around the world you know, really got to know one another. How do you how how can you uh, create this you know family unit that we had with so many people of uh, various backgrounds? And I have to say that's really the core of what how I learned how to do my job, um, how to meet and greet with people from different countries and have a deep appreciation for uh, their differences and and look for the similarities between our two countries. We'll talk about the Diplomatic Culinary Partnership in a minute, but in 1992, another partnership began, really, that has continued to this day, and that was with the, the then First Lady of Arkansas. Mm. Did, did some of the training that you had growing up appeal to uh, the spouse of a presidential candidate back then to say you could be very helpful to me on the campaign trail? Uh, I, I would probably have to say so. Uh, we we share also our Midwestern roots. Uh, she from Chicago and me a Cleveland girl. Um, but I think um, you know, a great deal of what we what we understood then and certainly understand uh, even better today is. Um, an appreciation for um, our position in the United States and and how we engage with the world and um, really reaching out to and getting to know and and respecting people from from other places. Uh, I have to say over the past 20 years, it's been the most incredibly awesome ride uh, as she has moved uh, from First Lady of Arkansas to First Lady of the United States, then Senator, and now our Secretary of State and has performed all of those jobs with uh, with great distinction, and in particularly as our Secretary of State. Can't be prouder American than to watch her at work. How did it actually begin for you in 1992 with the Clinton campaign? Oh, well, I was in Ohio. And I was a, um, it was, I, I think, I, I think of it a bit of a, a Forrest Gump experience. Uh, there was a law school professor who said, hey, do you want to uh, join this campaign of this unknown governor from Arkansas? And I was a Democrat and my father was a Republican. So I wanted to do anything really to antagonize my father. <laughs> and so I decided, oh, yes, I will join up. And I learned so much about him. But then I became incredibly fascinated with her. You know, one of America's top 100 lawyers. I had just graduated from law school. I thought, boy, I can learn a lot from this person, and uh, flew down to Arkansas, joined up with the campaign immediately, and from there on in, it's been just the most incredible journey of a lifetime. So you uh, come to the White House, you work with the First Lady, Hillary Clinton, uh, eventually uh, becoming Social Secretary. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I said earlier, the the youngest Social Secretary at age 32 in the modern era. Uh, That was phrased in such a way that there must have been a very young social secretary a long time ago that well, archives have unearthed. It was a first lady, actually, who was a social secretary. So it wasn't an official role Got it. until much later in time. Let's talk about some of the duties that you undertake now as uh, with Ambassador Rank, the U.S. Chief of Protocol. I want to hear a little bit of sound from March of this year. Uh, 
Prime Minister David Cameron of the UK and his wife arrive for a state arrival ceremony, a thing that I used to have such great mm -hmm. fun with, trying to tweak around. Maybe you and Sarah would sort of push back on one of the things I was trying to do. But uh, I want to hear how it, how it looks and sounds today. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Mrs. Michelle Obama. So I'm watching the video of this, Capricia. Uh, the president and first lady emerge from the diplomatic reception room, uh, and you are sitting, are standing there in your role as chief of protocol. What happens next? And and this is a ceremony that you've been involved with in a, in different capacities going back 15 or 20 years. How has that evolved in 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 the way you've watched it? Well, it has, you know, it, it is a ceremony with long tradition within our government, and uh, frankly, it hasn't changed much, um, which I, I actually find um, quite uh, uh, pleasing because it is um, one of those traditions that I think that we should keep sacred within our government. And just to watch at that moment that you just heard the announce of the president and the first lady and the doors are swung open by the military. You can just feel it within the crowd. You can feel this ah, moment. And the limousine is pulling up with our visiting delegation. And at that second, we are on a moment by moment TikTok in making sure that every detail until the president and the first lady bid farewell to our visiting dignitaries later that evening. And we have to make sure every moment happens as planned at least we keep our fingers crossed. And if it doesn't, we hope that we keep it behind a curtain so that no one knows. But I have to say, for this visit in particular, President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron are great friends. And this was a meeting of friendship. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity, a wonderful official visit to work on and um, and to, you know, for our country to extend that hand of friendship uh, to those, to our good friends in the UK. As much as we revel in these moments of pomp and circumstance, great American tradition, beautiful color, incredible music. There is the flip side of the role of, of diplomacy sometimes, and I, I, as I saw you waiting for Prime Minister and Mrs. Cameron on the South Drive of the White House, I also couldn't help but notice your role a few weeks ago at Andrews Air Force Base for the repatriation of Ambassador Stevens' body uh, from Libya. I want to hear a little bit of what Secretary Clinton said at that ceremony. Today, we bring home four Americans who gave their lives for our country and our values. To the families of our fallen colleagues, I offer our most heartfelt condolences and deepest gratitude. What was it like uh, as the U.S. Chief of Protocol to be asked to play a role in that ceremony? Well, I just even hearing her words right now, I, I am, you know, I have a very heavy heart. Uh, we were given less than 48 hours to work with our military counterparts to create the ceremony. 
And um, I have to say I'm, I'm very proud of what our team did in coordination with the military and other sectors of the State Department and White House to create this ceremony uh, to honor these four extraordinary individuals. Um, and also to do this for their families. Um, I met and now know many of the family members, and um, it was a very difficult moment, but this is where our leaders rise. Uh, during, just before this ceremony, the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, and the secretary of defense met with the family members and just were so incredibly comforting to them. And then I think followed by the ceremony, it was a great moment of um, solidarity within our nation and that our leaders were here to comfort us during this time of mourning, but also to to say, you know, we are here together and we are bonding in this moment and we, you know, we, we will take action. And um, uh, for me as chief of protocol, it was a, a moment of pride, but, but for me as an American citizen, it was a moment of, of great comfort as well. I've talked on this show in the past about uh, certainly advance work a lot and some of the uh, foreign trips that I've been involved with and the one trip that I did with President Obama back in uh, early 2009 probably before you were confirmed uh, the first summit of the Americas held in Port of Spain Trinidad and there was one moment that we were planning uh, for in the entire week or really hoping to avoid which would have been a handshake with President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and so we were pleased that the uh, the leaders were lined up in reverse alphabetical order, but in Spanish, so that Los Estados Unidos was as far away as you could imagine from Venezuela. And then the president did something extraordinary. He just sort of popped out of line, and I was the lead advance person at the time, and just walked up to President Chavez and extended his hand, hand in friendship and, and said, how are you? And so before we get to talking about the diplomatic partnership um, and culinary diplomacy, one role that you have in the protocol office this week is providing the same welcome to leaders to New York City for people that uh, the United States itself does not maintain a very warm relationship with. And that's gone on for decades. And whether that's Fidel Castro or uh, Ahmadinejad or Gaddafi, uh, what is the approach that the protocol office takes even when uh, we may not have the warmest relations with those who might visit our shores? Well, within you know, whenever we are given a our marching orders by um, the State Department or by the NSS, um, our job is to make sure that whatever setting the president is walking into, uh, it, the framework for diplomacy takes place, and so that we what we respect and we prepare um, that setting so that if he is engaging in a friendly conversation or one that might be difficult in either situation, it is uh, the, the framework for diplomacy is, is in place for him. So let's talk about a different framework for diplomacy, and that is uh, the Diplomatic Culinary Partnership setting the table for diplomacy. Quite a departure from oh some of the conversations that I was involved with with setting up meetings for uh, President Clinton and Hafez El Assad in in uh, in uh, Zurich in Geneva Switzerland and so this is about warmth and friendship. Um, it seems to be uh, a, an enormous step forward from those 
moments that we would uh, arrange for President Clinton and Chancellor Cole in Georgetown or Milwaukee. Tell us about the the culinary partnership. Well, this was an idea that um, I really thought about at the, in 2009, and again attributed to Secretary Clinton when we first arrived at the State Department, uh, and uh, we were preparing uh, working meetings, working lunches. Uh, there are there was a a lack of, if you will. Um, uh, appropriate um, uh, food, I guess, just to say it. It, it just uh, there was there wasn't very much imagination, and and part of what we wanted to do was to showcase uh, a part of our culture in this dining experience. Yes, we're engaging in um, a bilateral conversation, and uh, yes, there's lots of work that needs to be done. But at that moment, we have a wonderful opportunity in which to showcase who we are as a culture, as Americans. And and we want to take full advantage of that opportunity, every opportunity in which to do that. And also, um, most often, our uh, guests arrive very hungry. So we want to make sure not only are we showcasing our culture, but we're giving them something that's incredibly satisfying, that, it, that, we're, that we're nourishing them as well so that they can move on uh, with the work at hand. Uh, so I, um, I got together with our team and, and we discussed how we could go about doing this. And we are, United States of America just has the most incredibly talented individuals. And in that, the chefs, they're just extraordinary. I'm sitting next to one who's just fabulous. Uh, and we thought, why not reach out to them? They are, they create, they know uh, this new American culinary experience better than anyone. And let's engage with them and invite them into our government to participate uh, in telling other countries and people, you know, who we are and what and, and let them experience a bit more about our culture. You've even done things like just hire for the first time an executive chef at the State Department. We did, yes. Uh, Jason is amazing. He's wonderful, uh, very, very talented. And with him comes uh, Chris James. And uh, the two of them together in the in the kitchen create just uh, magic, I have to say. Uh, the secretary enjoys uh, engaging with leaders over a breakfast or lunches. Um, sometimes there's tea settings. I mean, it can change in, in depending upon, of course, what the occasion is. Uh, but they come up with new ideas and they come up with uh, new ways in which to which to present um, our great American uh, cuisine. Um, in addition to that, we know that uh, oftentimes leaders have a bit of a weight, so we don't want them to Holding wait. room food. You got it. Yeah, but it's really yummy. I, I hear Prime Minister Netanyahu is a big fan. Hummus. Good. Not only hummus, but good hummus. That was very important, and I considered that the greatest compliment when he told me. I mean, I can't imagine. I can't recall the number of pre-advances that I was on that we were basically brought to holding room, and there would be like you know, warm water and maybe a biscuit or something, but you've really taken this to the to the nth level and, and rolled out the welcome mat at the State Department, haven't you? Absolutely. And it doesn't take a great deal of effort. Uh, it just takes a bit more uh, thought and um, and a bit of creativity, but you can do so much. And, and as I said, you're creating a frame, framework for diplomacy, and that is part of it. When they feel welcomed, when they feel well-respected, uh, the conversations that our leaders then need to engage in can be a bit easier. Well, before we bring in Peter Betts, tell me about the American Chef Corps, how many there are, how they were picked, and what their 
what their mission is? Well, I'm telling you, it's it's counting and growing. Cur- currently, we have close to 80 within our American Chef Corps, and we're very excited about that. We're inviting chefs in from all over the country. We want people to participate and then to become a state chef because you want to move from an American chef to a state uh, chef. Now, you mm. get a certain blue jacket if you get a state chef, if you're That's a state chef? right. Yes, you do. You get a blue jacket. And it and it's about you know going out there and participating and doing something. So uh, if you travel to another country, it could be blogging, it could be twittering, uh, tweeting? Yes, sorry, tweeting. tweeting. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, you, you, It just takes um, uh, some sort of activity uh, to talk about uh, what we're doing in our country when it comes to the American culinary experience. We will post the full list of the Washington chefs among the American Chef Corps. Um, as I'm looking at the You'd expect a lot of D.C. chefs to be members, uh, but I'm looking at the rest of the chefs, a lot of representation of New York, Chicago, Atlanta, the Spotted Pig in uh, in New York City, one of them, April Bloomfield, um, New Orleans, San Francisco, Tony Maas from Cambridge, also uh, from nearby my hometown, uh, another state chef from um, Wellesley, Massachusetts, who prepared one of the recent meals. So um, with that, let's actually meet one of the members of the newly minted American Chef Corps, Peter Betts. He's the executive sous chef at the Waldorf Astoria, trained by the CIA. No, not that CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Welcome to Polyoptics, Peter. Thanks for joining Capricia and me. Thank you for having me. Uh, what drew you to, to join this effort that Capricia and Secretary Clinton have started? Well, you know, um, working at the Waldorf Astoria and... Um, doing all these diplomatic events all the time, it kind of is, I feel, is like a natural uh, fit. And actually, I was very lucky to be invited by uh, Ambassador Marshall, and I feel it's a great honor. And I'm, I'm really very interested in seeing um, and, and excited in seeing where this is going to go. I want to see where this is going to go, too. Let's, let's put that aside for a second and tell me what it's like for the staff of the Waldorf from the restaurants to room service to the main kitchen itself during a UN General Assembly week? It's unlike any other week of the year. Uh, Imagine the trucks that are bringing the food coming overnight and having to go through security checkpoints with uh, dogs and all kinds of stuff three blocks away and then the staff having to go through like an airport type security to get in and out of the hotel. However, having said all that, the staff is also so excited to be part of something that's so special and so unique that so few people really get to be involved with. You know, as we're going through our pre-meal shifts, we're talking about dinners for world leaders and, you know, the State Department and all kinds of really unbelievable events. And it's just so uh, motivating for my staff. And I'm just very proud to be part of it. I was thinking about this this morning as I uh, drove down 7th Avenue. that New York is such a foodie town. Uh, we've got millions of mouths to feed every day. And New York also prides itself on the freshness of its cuisine. And yet I don't perceptively see all the transportation of food that must come in from the city through the bridges and tunnels. Just beyond Unga Week, what have you learned about how food gets from farm to the Waldorf Astoria and, and other restaurants in the city? Well, you know, What's interesting about that is it all happens usually, like I said, very early in the morning. This week, even more so. So we really all don't see that. But if you were to like come into the city three, four o'clock in the morning, 
you would see these trucks just lining up outside the restaurants and the hotels. And what happens is that in the last couple of years, the vendors have really thought of very creative ways to bring local product to the table. And what they do is, for instance, there's farms out on Long Island. So the vendors will send trucks out to, like, say, the Hamptons to drop off products, whatever it may be that was ordered for the day. But on the way back, with that empty truck, with that truck we used to come back empty, is now stopping at the farms on Long Island and filling up with local product. And those vendors are also making sure that we know what is local, what's fresh, and what's available at every time, every week of the year. So it's really been an amazing uh, transformation, probably in the last three years as far as local product goes. So as the executive sous chef of the Waldorf Astoria, Peter Betts, what have been some of the menus you've been preparing this week for your special guests uh, who are affiliated with the General Assembly? Well, the other night for high, high profile event, we did uh, roasty, a fine herb roasty potato with uh, spice-rubbed uh, beef and fall squash, diamond-cut fall squash. Also a uh, miso-glazed um, cod with uh, coconut sticky rice and Chinese long beans. Was that for a particular Asian guest? or It wasn't. It, it, um, you know, it was for, like I said, a high-profile uh, event at the hotel. And again, uh, you know, I'm always very careful as to what I say about specifics. Um, but we try to make the food kind of universal and um, we use ingredients from all over the place. You know, it's funny, people will say to me sometimes, what is your specialty? And I'll, my response usually is cooking and putting together flavors because food has become such a um, melting pot in the last 10, 15 years that very few people are really cooking like one type of cuisine. And that's why, you know, when we sit around the table, and um, people from all parts of the world are there. We're able to all relate to the food in front of us because they can all relate to an ingredient or a spice or something that's on the plate. What are the ways in which you, Peter Betts, a chef, learn about new foods, new recipes, new approaches to serving food? Well, at its basic, one of the things that I make sure I do, and this is particularly in the summer, is I take my sous chefs um, who are responsible for you know, really running the day-to-day operations in the kitchen. And we make sure that we take time out in the summer when the city gets a little bit slower and we go out to the farms on Long Island and we make uh, a couple of days um, a trip of it and we make sure we meet all the farmers and we talk about what's new, what's local, when is it going to be growing. And, you know, out of those conversations come the ideas of the new dishes, along with reading and, and speaking to other chefs and seeing what the trends are and what's going on in the world, but really getting close to the product really inspires you, I think, to come up with new dishes and new ways to present food. Are there any times during the year that the executive chefs at the major Hilton properties from around the world get together and share ideas? How do you work with your colleagues across the chain? We have um, avenues on on um, our Hilton website where we share ideas. Our recipe um, module that we use to, to build our recipes and work out how we're going to make our dishes is actually open access to everybody in the company. And we share things that way. And a lot of times a chef from another property will say, oh, we really had a lot of success with this dish. Why don't you guys try it? And we kind of share back and forth. And and as as I've traveled around to other properties, we've talked about that kind of stuff and shared our different ideas and and recipes. So when was it uh, brought to your attention that there is an American chef corps and maybe uh, Chef Betts can be a, a part of it? I started to hear a little bit about it about, uh, I guess, a month and a half ago. And then as it got closer, um, we started to hear about the event. I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be until actually we were invited to it. And then once we were invited to it, they really talked about 
the specifics of it, and I really got excited about the uh, prospect. You went down to the State Department? I went down to, yeah, we, we started out at the White House, and we did a tour with uh, Chef Comerford and Chef Cass in the, in the White House, and that was really a treat. We got to, t- I've, you know, kind of um, always wanted to get together with them, Chef Comerford, a little bit back and forth in the past, but um, to see their garden, to see what they're doing, I mean, the, between their beehive and their garden on the White House lawn, it was very inspiring to see what their, their direction is, and um how we can all kind of uh, get together and, and build a relationship to uh, further these diplomatic events. You don't have to be the White House chef to have your own beehive, do you? You have one at the Waldorf Astoria. That's correct. We have actually six beehives with copper roofs at the Waldorf Astoria. Wow. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Just because it fits the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> and, and what are the bees doing for you? So um, the bees reside on the 20th floor at the Waldorf Astoria overlooking the Chrysler Building. So they have one of the best uh, vantage points in the city. But what happens there is um, we're able to use a really, uh, how much more local can you get than having honey on your, on the 20th floor of your uh, building. But we, you know, we're using it in our, in our ice cream and in a lot of different recipes. And we're just going to continue to, to use it in the hotel, especially for uh, very VIP guests, because we, you know, there is a limited amount of the honey that we get every year, but it also excites the staff. So the staff is involved with the honey harvest and the maintaining of the beehives, and it really gets them excited about food. And when they get excited about food, the process of developing menus becomes like a team effort. And really, when you do that, the end product is always better. What are the uh, responsibilities that you as American, a member of the American Chef Corps will now have to uh, undertake? Well, it's in its infancy right now, but... Um, I foresee myself um, speaking at events where um, we talk about how food bridges the gap between uh, people of different cultures and different nations, which it really does because if you think about it, as food sits on the table, the first conversation to break the ice is usually going to be about food, and it's the thing that we all have in common, right? Everybody eats food, and every, you know, and all, all cultures have their cuisine, and uh, it's always something that brings people together. Everybody f- eats food, everybody watches television, everybody goes to the movies. Obviously, at, the, at, at my household and my wife, uh, a lot more of our time has been taken up watching uh, uh, cooking-based and chef-based reality shows over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and we were talking a little bit earlier about how you yourself became a chef, but how much has the uh, turning cooking into entertainment uh, enriched or or enlarged the appreciation of American cuisine, not only across the country, but around the world? Well, I think it's been great because it's brought a lot of awareness um, to people. I think, you know, we a lot of us grew up with our grandmothers being great cooks, and that was kind of like, you know, how we learned about cooking. And then it felt like it started to skip a generation, but as... Um, food became so prevalent on these shows and became entertainment everybody's becoming interested in you know really you know fine cooking and um as a result we've been able to be more creative with our dishes than we were in the past because people are open to more interesting and unique flavors some of the most uh, entertaining experiences that I have at restaurants is restaurants that have a, an open kitchen that you can almost walk right up to the the wall and see everything that's happening. Uh, do people get that opportunity at the Waldorfers or, or is the kitchen mostly behind closed doors? We actually have both. So we have um, a restaurant on the ground level, Oscars, that predominantly does uh, breakfast service. That's a completely open kitchen. So people get to see that. Um, the banquet kitchen is a closed kitchen because it's so large and it has to service so many areas. But what we do do is we do tastings in the kitchen. 
So in, ba- in fact, Ambassador Marshall has been in the kitchen many times for tastings, and she sits in the middle of the kitchen on the sauce station with us as we cook directly for her. And going on tough life, Capricia. Thousands of cover, <laughs> thousands of covers of production are going on around her. So as you can imagine, we're talking about a menu that's going to be for world leader, and there's carts going past her and people chopping, you know, vegetables and all kinds of stuff. So. Um, we are still an open kitchen in a lot of ways. That's still. What's your view on how international cultures view American cuisine? You know, you can go. There's the old adage that you can walk down the Champs Elysees and you get your, your eye it, within your field of vision. You see golden arches. You see a colonel. You see Papa John. You see Starbucks. And yet, there is so much richness to our agricultural uh, economy. You know, our country was built on agriculture. Uh, is there a way that we can do a better job about portraying what American cuisine is all about? Well, I think that that's kind of happening now. And I think that, you know, as you referenced before, the food networks and all the uh, shows that are um, um, showing the great American chefs that are out there now are really getting the word out that, you know, this is a serious um, um, cuisine. The United States has really moved forward in the last, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been American chefs trained to do f- French cuisine or, or, or something like that. Now it's American chefs really are, are, are blazing a path of their own and really, you know, um, building a cuisine that we can be very proud of. You said uh, the United Nations General Assembly Week is one of the busiest in the year for you and your staff. Is this a, a week in which you tend to find a room in the hotel and stay overnight, or are you going back to Long Island uh, most nights? It, it depends on the night. Um, the first couple of nights of this week, yeah, we were there uh, around the clock. And, you know, just planning and making sure that everything's there. Um, like I said, the logistics was 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 the biggest challenge, as always, making sure the product was there and, that, you know, Nothing got held up in a security checkpoint or something like that. We're talking with Peter Betts, executive sous chef of the Waldorf Astoria and one of the new, the newly uh, indoctrinated members of the American Chef Corps and also a graduate of the Culinary uh, Institute of America, the CIA. Uh, how did you decide or how did you discover uh, in your childhood that you were destined toward a, a life in the kitchen? Well, I always found myself gravitating towards my grandmother's kitchen. Um... She, you know, was always cooking it on Sunday nights. Is it an ethnic background or is it? She, she's Italian. Yep. And, uh, you know, we always, uh, Sunday nights, always the whole family got together at her house. And that was always the highlight of the week for everyone. And I just remember myself, like, standing in awe of her at all the time. And, how you know, and she worked as well because there was a family business as well. But uh, she always made time on the weekend for her family and always cooked from scratch everything in the kitchen. And the food was, was just so delicious and the action and just everybody standing around socializing in the kitchen. And I just, you know, became so, um, you know, interested in, in doing that. And that uh, when I went to college and actually I was a, a political science major because I was also interested in like world events and politics and that kind of stuff. But I just always was drawn back to food. So I started working. Um as a cook in the club there at school and I just knew that that's what I wanted to do so I you know so I looked at for a path of how how I was going to build a career on that and CIA was the natural uh, next step for me and um, uh, the rest is history. Did your relationship around food with your grandmother continue? Did she follow your career as you advanced through the ranks? Well unfortunately she she actually didn't live to see me um, rise to where I am now and uh I often wish she, you know, at least could have been just one day to see me be 
a chef at the Waldorf Astoria would have been really special for her because the hotel was a special place to her, and you know she would have been really proud. And well, somewhere up there, she's whipping up a special batch of meatballs to celebrate in her pride <laughs> in this. She's probably critiquing what I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Betts, thanks so much for for coming along with Capricia and telling us a little bit about the American Chef Corps. Thank you. So, Ambassador Marshall, how did you originally connect with uh, with Chef Betts? Well, it is during this very hectic uh, UN General Assembly week, and um, you know, we depend upon nourishment at the Waldorf to keep everyone going, and in particular our leaders. I have to say that Secretary Clinton is so grateful for this one dinner that Peter just spends a great deal of work on. It's called the Transatlantic Dinner, and she invites in all of her counterparts, so it's foreign ministers from all over the Transatlantic. And she so looks forward to this dinner every year because it is not only beautifully set, but incredibly delicious. And that is all due to the wonderful work of Peter. He understands the various taste buds of all these various people that are going to be gathering from all over the world. And in particular, he knows what Secretary Clinton likes. And a good, hearty meal. And it, it is always that. As a matter of fact, we just had that uh, two nights ago, and she raved completely afterwards. Peter always does the best job possible, and we're forever grateful for him for that. And I remember so many trips back in my White House days, the Waldorf was always stop number one. It was always our base of operations whenever we'd uh, we'd come up here and then drive down to the Wall Street hel- heliport, take helicopters up to Hyde Park, meet with President Yeltsin, come back to the Waldorf. But it's totally a home away from home for U.S. presidents, Peter, really going back. Uh, we talked earlier to, to Franklin Roosevelt and the special station he had underneath to, to come to the Waldorf, right? It's true. And, you know, like I was saying before, I just feel so proud to be a part of it and you know I'm so grateful to Ambassador Marshall and all of the dignitaries and everybody who allow us to be the host for them for the week and you know what what more could you ask for as a chef than to be hosting all these world leaders and actually hopefully you know affecting some kind of diplomatic um, relationships between them. Well, Ambassador Capricia Marshall, U.S. Chief of Protocol, Peter Betts, Executive Sous Chef of the Waldorf Astoria, and one of the newest members of the American Chef Corps. We look forward to you projecting American food power overseas and, and American cuisine overseas and helping to really break down so many of the barriers in communication and conversation that, that often happens when people just sit down to enjoy a meal together. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Chef. Really appreciate you coming on Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.